Hello, and welcome to Follow the Science, an exploration of science, medicine, medical misinformation, and how to tell the difference. I'm your host, Faye Flam. I'm a science journalist and a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, and this podcast is funded by a grant from the Society for Professional Journalists. Today, I'm going to talk about all those rules and regulations that are aimed at stemming the pandemic. I think that's a topic that spans science, medicine, and medical misinformation, because I'll be looking at which rules are science-based, which ones are medically justified, which ones might be causing more harm than good, and how we might ease up or change the rules if the pandemic continues to wane. Right now, we're seeing cases declining and hospitalizations going down. Rules and regulations can also constitute a form of medical misinformation, what I'm calling official misinformation, because I think it's natural to assume that if there's a rule against something, it's because breaking that rule could cause people to get sick or die. And as I learned from the experts, that's just not necessarily so. I'll be talking to two different experts today. The first one is Julia Marcus. She's an epidemiologist at Harvard, and her background is in dealing with HIV. That's given her a really interesting perspective, because early in the HIV pandemic, a lot of people were told that if they tested positive, they could never have sex again. But then the public health community started thinking differently and talking about safer sex. And she calls that a swing from an abstinence-only approach to something called harm reduction. She says that many of our COVID rules and regulations are based on an abstinence-only approach, but historically, that's never worked, and in this current situation, it's clearly unsustainable. Yeah, I mean, it's a long time, and, you know, I started writing in early May about why we needed to be thinking about sustainability, and everything I wrote then still holds now, and I'm not sure that we ever really got to a place of trying to adapt our lives in a way that's sustainable. You've acknowledged something that a lot of experts don't like to talk about, which is that people do have social needs. Yep. (laughs) People have social needs. And I think our whole approach to this pandemic may have benefited from recognizing that upfront and centering it in our messaging and policies. I think we have largely failed to do that. And the result is that people are in great need of social connection. We haven't, and I I say that because some of the restrictions on social connection are needed and, and important. So I don't want to diminish that. I think we actually do need to avoid especially large indoor gatherings right now. But I think we've also restricted some low risk activities in ways that maybe have increased fatigue without much benefit in terms of risk reduction. And that's what I worry about. That's really important. So let's talk about that a little bit. That's actually something that has come up over the summer where people were arguing about whether it's okay to go to the beach. And it seemed like there was, yeah. (laughs) And so it seems like people are associating fun with risk, that the more fun it is, the worse it must be. And yet that can't possibly be true. So let's talk about that. Yeah, I think we have a lot of examples now of policies that just don't make a lot of sense. Restrictions on beaches, restrictions on playgrounds and parks, 
Those make sense if you're thinking about this from an abstinence-only perspective, we, where we are trying to eliminate all social contact, contact outside of one's household to reduce transmission as much as possible. But that's obviously unsustainable and has not, has not been a successful model for any other area of public health, so I don't know why it would be now. The reality is that beaches and parks and playgrounds are very low-risk places for people to gather, and people will gather. And so let's make those low-risk spaces available to them and give people a break, is what mm -hmm. I'm trying to say. Give people a break so that they don't become fatigued in the places where it really matters, which is indoors with close prolonged contact with people from outside of their household. Mm -hmm. They know that, you know, the, the restrictions on playgrounds are likely, to, are likely to have minimal benefit in terms of reducing transmission risk. And to be in a, a city where you can't use the playground, but you can dine indoors, that kind of um, dissonance erodes public trust. She's written several pieces for The Atlantic and other publications on the puritanical way that Americans have started shaming people for simply having fun, even if whatever they're doing is posing little or no COVID risk. This is kind of an unnecessary killjoy. And public health doesn't need to be the fun police. We need to reduce risk and focus on the places where it really matters. And I think we've gotten a little distracted. She points to overly stringent outdoor mask mandates as a sort of a distraction because the COVID risk is really very tiny unless people are interacting at an extremely close range. I tweeted something about it just being like, you know, this is a bit much. Come on. And it's not, it's not evidence-based. Like you don't need to wear a mask when you're walking alone. <laughs> I am personally, as we were just saying, really interested in the ways that public health policy messaging and policies can inadvertently promote misinformation. Let's say by enforcing mask use when you're not close to people. Does that then make people think public health people are stupid or does it make them, and or does it make them think like the virus can jump across the street? You know, so like... Certainly, there's an unbelievable amount of misinformation available to people that's very hard to control through social media and whatnot. But because I'm most interested in public health communication and policy, I really think about the ways that we accidentally can give people the wrong impression about what's important just in the way that we, you know, wear a mask at all times outdoors, like when you're out of your house, like... It, actually nuance can give people more accurate information, even if it requires more words. I, I sometimes read the comments under the, I find that the ones uh, in the Boston Globe particularly telling about sort of what people out there are thinking. Yeah. And I remember reading one where someone was saying, I've seen so many unmasked people outdoors that I'm worried there's bad air. Right. So right. now isn't that a sort of a misinformed viewpoint? It's a totally misinformed viewpoint, but it's driven by outdoor mask mandates. Do you see what I mean? I mean, surely they're thinking, surely this wouldn't be, they wouldn't be uh, going to the trouble of fining people. On the other hand, I could see how there are certain things, people tend to toward behaviors that are easy and for public, you know, for politicians, it's easy to catch people outside not wearing a mask. If you if your goal is to get money by finding people, it's a lot harder to find people. But that's a terrible goal. My next guest is Babak Javed. He's an infectious disease doctor at the University of California, San Francisco, 
And he's also one of the very first people to advocate and fight for the widespread use of masks back in the early spring of 2020, when many of his colleagues in the public health and medical communities were telling people not to buy masks because they didn't work. Well, that's really turned around. And now many of those public health officials are saying that they'd like to see people continue to wear masks long into the future after this pandemic is over. And as I learned from him, he's not one of them. I am not in favor of a masking future, you know. Uh, I think the days of going into the office with the sniffles is over for the foreseeable future. And all the, these sort of some past behaviors will need to change. But we most definitely need to be looking to a maskless future. He came into this pandemic with a background in treating and studying tuberculosis. So he has some experience in dealing with learning how to control transmission of a communicable disease. So I'm an associate professor in the Division of Experimental Medicine at UCSF. I'm an infectious diseases physician scientist. And my particular research uh, interests, by and large, are on tuberculosis. For me, you know, uh, being a research on, in the TB field, there was always this, uh, you know, history of how do we limit transmission and, you know, uh, TB until last year was the number one pathogen in the world in terms of global mortality. And it will be back to number one this year, sadly. Didn't know what he made of the current downturn in the pandemic, the fairly rapid decrease in cases and hospitalizations that's been going on since mid-January right into the middle of February. A lot of public health types have tried to attribute all changes in the pandemic to human behavior, but he didn't. He acknowledges that there's more to the picture than that, including some factors that are not all that well understood. Well, I wanted to ask you an, a question about what's happening now and how to think about it scientifically. And that, that is, we see cases dropping quite fast. That wasn't predicted. People say, oh, well, it might be seasonal, but we're, we're in the dead of winter. It's I'm in Rhode Island. It's freezing cold. People aren't spending less time indoors. And so the behavior from what I see around me hasn't changed. People seem to be behaving about the same way they did in November, October, and um, December when it was, uh, you know, when it was surging. So what do you think is going on? How should we think about this scientifically? People seem very quick to want to point to human behavior or uh, policies. I think, honestly, it's com complicated and I'm not going to pretend to fully understand it, but I'm very skeptical of people who do claim to fully understand it. You're absolutely right. Why are these cases falling? in the context of not much behavioral change. And you know, I suspect that there's an element of what I, what I called last summer, because we saw this in Arizona last summer, actually, when there was this huge spike in cases, mm -hmm. followed by a very sh a sharp fall, uh, without much in the way of you know, mask wearing and everything. And you know, Arizonians were being condemned left, right, and center as the most irresponsible citizens in America because they weren't wearing masks and distancing. And then two weeks later, they were being hailed as paragons of behavioral virtue because cases were suddenly falling. And I think you know, there, there's probably what I, what I call context-specific herd immunity, where if you get above a certain threshold of people that have been recently infected and are immune, the most connected people in the population 
who are the most likely to get infected, therefore, have fewer people to pass it on to. That's not the same as robust herd immunity. It doesn't mean that if you relax all measures, uh, you know, there won't be a, a, a spike in cases because, you know, a lot of people still haven't been infected or unprotected by vaccination. But in the context where the sort of effective transmission of COVID is reduced because of these measures that we have in place, then actually even modest amounts of immunity may be enough to cause a, a fall in cases, as well as the behavioral elements. Yes. I think it's you know, all these things working in concert. I wanted to know what he thought of the rules and regulations that don't help very much or are not science-based and whether they might be considered a form of misinformation. Are there some precautionary measures that maybe aren't helping very much and where there isn't evidence that they help? And should we be focusing on the ones that do help? We now know that the likelihood of transmission by inanimate objects, so what we call fomite transmission, where you pick things up by touching them, is not a major mode of transmission. I'm not going to say it's zero because I think, for example, heavily used banister in a subway station or, or something along those lines, you know, might well present um, some risk. Uh, but the sort of hygiene theater we like to go through in terms of wiping stuff down and all the rest of it probably is um, overplayed. Uh, and I think part of it is to reassure ourselves because we feel in control when we sanitize our hands, uh, but also um, commercial entities can sh show that they're doing something. So I think there's an element of hygiene theater for psychological reasons more than anything else. Uh, probably doesn't, isn't that effective. Uh, where it becomes a problem is when things like schools, you know, some people say we can't start schools because we don't have the staff to wipe down every desk 14 times a day. You know, that kind of gets me irritated because I'm not sure that's what we need to be focusing on. Whereas we do now know that this, uh, you know, this virus is spread through inhalation of small and large droplets, uh, and therefore mitigation measures that address that are far more important. Do you think that that this sort of risk-benefit ratio goes in favor of at least letting the young children attend some in-person school? Without any doubt in my mind. So I have another confession to make. Um, I do not, I, I disbelieve that people can give you COVID by riding past you on a bicycle without a mask. I just disbelieve that. I don't believe it. I think that's very unlikely. You know, I think, you know, in the context of a pandemic where there are literally hundreds of million cases worldwide, even rare events can happen. So I'm not going to say it's impossible. And I think if two cycling buddies are very competitive and they like to cycle in each other's slipstream, you know, maybe there's a risk there. I don't know enough about the physics of that, honestly. Generally speaking, I think the risks of, you know, someone cycling past you and giving you COVID is minimal, to say the least. I would think even just walking, you know, passing people on a hiking trail or something. I mean, we all do it in this sort of symbolic way, but and I actually don't believe when I pass someone on a hiking trail that we could give each other COVID. I think I agree that I think the risks of such... Um, such transmission events are, are minimal. I, I, you know, I'm very reluctant to ascribe zero risk to anything. At the same time, as I'm not willing to ascribe 100% risk to anything. You know, I, I'm not a great believer in absolutes, but I think we need to be focusing elsewhere. Now, that doesn't mean that I'm completely against wearing masks outdoors. 
in the Bay Area, you know, we have this sort of mask mandate where you, you have to wear a mask outdoors if you come across people that aren't in your household. I actually like that because it normalizes wearing the masks. And that means that actually indoor wearing of mask compliance is so much higher as a result. But, you know, that's for when you're taking a leisurely stroll outside. I'm, I'm not a fan of forcing people to wear masks when they're engaging in heavy exercise. I don't, I don't think that's helpful. I guess I also wonder, because I think people are a little confused because they'll come up and yell and scream at maskless exercisers. And I think the yelling and screaming is actually a, a, a risky thing that yelling and screaming in someone's face is bad. And exercising alone without a mask is not bad, but the people have gotten confused. Sadly, there's a lot of a lack of civility in, uh, in all things COVID. Something <laughs> yes. But also the confusion that the yelling is more of a danger than the exercise. Yes, for sure. Yelling is, uh, you know, we know that, uh, that uh, speech and loud speech in particular transmits far more virus laden particles uh, than just breathing. So what happens when, how do we decide when to stop wearing masks? Do we have to wait till there's no COVID? Um, or is there going to be some point when people who don't want to have to wear masks, especially so people who live alone and have not have very little human interaction can start to live something livable again? Do we have to wait till there's zero COVID? Well, I don't think we'll ever get to zero COVID. We have to be having an optimistic outlook and planning for the future. Some of us, I think, have got addicted to the doom and gloom. I'm not one of those people. I'm an optimist. And I think that we need to definitely be making plans to live with COVID. That doesn't mean abandoning all precautions. And it certainly doesn't mean that we need to, you know, say, you know, whoever dies, dies and all the rest of it. Not at all. You know, I'm not a COVID denier. I think this has been the most serious global pandemic in a century. But at some point, the measures that we are embarking on are causing greater harm than good. And I think we have to be absolutely honest about that and acknowledge that. And already that's happening in the case of the US and its reluctance to open up public schools. I then asked him about socializing and when public health types might start telling people that it's okay. Because I don't think that socializing is something frivolous, even though some people have painted it that way. Contact with other humans is a basic need. And a lot of people have been extremely isolated during this pandemic, which is not just miserable, it's also unhealthy. I also wondered, you know, there's been some chit chat on Twitter about, you know, is it safe for people who've been vaccinated to get together with other people who've been vaccinated? And I wondered, how do we draw the line? It seems sort of low risk at that point, and also maybe high benefit if you've been alone for a long time. If someone asks me, you know, I want to have a dinner party with six friends, we're all immunized, is it okay? And none of our, you know, family members, you know, that we live with are not immunized, then I think the risks of that are so remotely low, I go for it. I, I don't see the world through a COVID only lens. You know, we take risks all the time in everyday life. In fact, in the US, all cause mortality for young children went down in 2020. But that doesn't mean we need to shut schools and playgrounds, because that's better for saving kids lives. You know, uh, we, we can't have a single metric govern our lives. I, I just don't believe in that. That's, I think that's a really important thing. And I, th I also wonder, people ask a lot about, you know, is this safe? Is that safe? And it's, it's um, you know, there's people have different ideas of what constitutes safe. I have a friend who's in her 
upper 80s who's asked me, you know, do you think it's safe to go to a restaurant indoors after I've had my second shot? And, you know, it's really hard for me to answer that. You know, it's so hard to make those judgments when people ask, is this safe or is that safe? I think that's exactly right. And, you know, the reality is that there are some behaviors that are going to be more risky than others. If you have a dinner party in your own home among all vaccinated participants is so remote that I would say that that we should be encouraging that sort of behavior now, honestly. You know, in the Bay Area, uh, in December, we went through another shelter at home, which was lifted recently. And I was very dismayed that as part of those measures, outdoor playgrounds were shut for kids. And you weren't allowed to socialize even outdoors with anyone outside of your household. And I felt that those were both really backward policies because they, you know, they're going to encourage people who want to do something to do it out of sight and out of mind, which were much riskier in the context that at that time, almost nobody was was vaccinated. Do you think it seems like there's always a new threat? You know, it was long COVID, then it was now it's the new strains that it seems like there's always going to be something even as cases go down and vaccinations go up. How do we deal with that sort of unknown factor? Well, I think the most important thing is not to have hubris you know, uh, and to be, you know, to change our minds if necessary. Uh, So I think that that's the other thing that, you know, I, as a scientist, I'm always changing my mind. And I think that that's a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. But I think the same is also true that, you know, if we never take off the bandage, we'll never know when the bleeding stopped. You know, um, at some point you have to go and check to see whether, um, whether it's safe to do things that were deemed unsafe before. I think the one thing, I wonder whether too many public health types uh, were not transparent about the level of uncertainty they had, you know, that they expressed so much certainty early on that it made people think they were flip-flopping when it wouldn't have looked that way if they said, well, we don't understand this disease very well, but because we're, we're concerned and it could be really bad, we're going to do these measures and then, you know, and then we're going to learn and then we'll, we'll re, you know, we'll, We'll kind of rethink things um, in a month or two months, reevaluate. I think that the, the science communication of this pandemic has been woeful. Extreme uh, opinions either way are the ones that garner the strongest reaction in the audience. And unfortunately, that's really come to the fore, um, even among scientists, I have to say. But I have to say that, you know, I did take a three-month holiday at some point from Twitter because I just couldn't face the polarization, even among scientists, among issues that I felt were genuine unknowns, but you either had to be a COVID denier or you had to basically COVID is the only public health threat that's ever existed and will ever exist. And I just don't take either of those, you know, extreme points of view. You know, that gets to this question that I think in the, in the general public, there's almost like a narrative that there's a disconnect between scientists who are united in saying that COVID is the worst, you know, the only public health threat and the public who are recalcitrant and, you know, don't want to follow the rules. But it sounds like there is polarization all the way up to the, to the uh, scientists at the, at the top of the hierarchy that, that the scientists themselves have become polarized. I certainly think some have. I don't think everyone has. And, you know, and the reality is that, um, you know, one obviously likes to think of oneself in a favorable light. So I would like to think of myself as a COVID centrist. As 2020 dragged into 2021, his position on masks was always moderate. 
You'll argue that there's some probability that they help some in some circumstances. But somehow the community's position has moved from one extreme, that they don't work at all, to an almost religious belief that they ward off the disease and need to be worn at all times, even when there's close to zero risk of transmission. Well, last spring, it was really, I mean, I was a, I was a very early advocate of universal masking. But uh, at the time I was in the UK and I had mostly focused on trying to get the UK science and leadership interested in this without any luck. And then we tried to publish our findings and the medical journals we were sending it to were very reluctant to publish anything in favor of universal masking. To be fair, I still don't know how helpful it was to, or, or is to wear masks, but I think that in, you know, it's, it, it's, you know, it's cheap, easy, low risk, no downs, you know, very few downsides, you know, why not? And it's very hard to do studies of, um, of masks for, for, for technical reasons as it, as, as it happens. Um, although I wasn't, you know, averse to doing those studies if anyone wanted to, just no one did. And given the trend right now with cases falling and vaccinations rising and fear lessening, I asked him how public health should readapt to a less dangerous future. So I yeah I also wondered um, you said you're you're an advocate of masking but you don't expect people to wear a mask forever and I wondered if you could elaborate on that a little bit you know when we might be able to sort of consider be considered good citizens even if we go outside without a mask honestly I don't know you know I think that you know the reality you know, if it, if you'd asked me you know in November or October of last year. I would have said that when COVID is no longer a major public health threat, in the sense that it's, it stops threatening overwhelming um, healthcare infrastructure and so on, then I think we can, you know, stop wearing masks. And, you know, when you've immunized the most vulnerable 20, 25% of your population, the risks of hospitalization and death decrease dramatically in that context. I think mandates have a place in the context of an emergency, but I think at some point we're going to have to say that these mandates no longer apply because the risks of health, our healthcare infrastructure being overwhelmed are low. That does not mean the same thing as that there will not be people who become sick and die from COVID. There will be for possibly years to come. It, well, and I guess if it seems like it's less of a threat than flu, then that seems like we could go back to treating it the way we treated flu, which was to take some precautions, but not shut down. Absolutely. Although I think that, you know, we can also learn, you know, we can learn that, let's say, if you have, you know, flu-like symptoms, don't come to work, or yes. at the very least, you should wear a mask, you know, uh, as they do in East Asia, as, as they have been doing in East Asia for many, many years, so that, you know, any of my, when I lived in Beijing, any of my students who had even the slightest cold-like symptom, would wear a mask to work. That's not a bad, you know, but, and, you know, Westerners look, used to look down on that because we're very individualistic as society. You know, we, we worry more about how we look to others than caring about our neighbors or whatever. I think we do need to change some of those attitudes. I don't think that means that A, we need to wear masks forever, or B, we need to shut everything down when the risks of COVID are, are much, you know, an order or more magnitude lower than they are now. And yeah, I think there's sort of a myth that people in Asia wear masks all the time, just randomly wear them. But it's when they're sick, they wear one, right? Absolutely. 
Yeah. Uh, that people don't go to restaurants in a mask or uh, they, I guess they might wear them on public transportation if it's very crowded. Most people wouldn't, you know, unless there's, the air pollution was really bad. You know, at any one time in Beijing in 2019, the, unless the air pollution was really hazardous, uh, most people would not be wearing masks. Yes, that's what I thought. <laughs> that's what I thought. But it seems like there's a misconception that people just wore masks all the time in Asian countries. Um, a lot of Americans have never been, haven't really traveled much. And so it's easy to be convinced of things like that, I guess. The one thing I would say is that this is not an existential threat, but let's learn from what's happened. You know, because there will be other pandemics in the future and the next one may be worse than this one, actually, you know, believe it or not. Well, I think we've seen the state of knowledge evolve and change a lot over the last year, which is understandable because this is a new situation. It's very different from anything that's happened before. And the scientists are trying to figure things out as they go along. So I think it's not fair to fault them too much for changing their minds. And it's probably more important to fault them if the state of knowledge changes and they don't change their minds about the policies that are affecting all of our lives. Thank you for listening to Follow the Science. Follow the Science is produced by Faye Flam with funding by the Society for Professional Journalists. Today's episode was edited by Seth Glicksman with music by Kyle Imperator. If you'd like to hear more Follow the Science, you can subscribe to the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast fix.